I know, right? Uh, uh, this week we continue uh, week two of our new series, Corners of the Field. Um, last week we looked at Leviticus. I know everybody's favorite Bible uh, scriptures is found in Leviticus. Your favorite book of the Bible is Leviticus, right? Um, Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. And we looked at what God was telling the early people of Israel, uh, you know, talking 3,000 years ago or more. This was a message God spoke to his people about what they do with their resources, what they do with their fields, what do they do with their grapes, and then why. And just as a recap, because this is the foundational idea behind our sermon series for the next several weeks, I thought we'd recap those two verses. It's only two verses. It won't take a terribly uh, long amount of time. But uh, Leviticus 19, 9, and 10 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Um, as we talked about last week, this could be, it seems like a really simple instruction to maybe some farmers, like how to, you know, when you harvest, do this, don't do that type of thing. But the more you talk about it in terms of the society in which they live, the context in which it is, you, you start to realize that this has got bigger implications, um, especially when the scripture says to leave stuff for the foreigner, for the stranger, for those who are in need. I'm going to move this. I've already tripped on it twice. Um, this can be a hard lesson to learn, to figure out. In fact, it's been a lesson that I've been wrestling with um, for quite a while. Um, I know I'm going to share a story, and it's a, short, a story I've shared, I think, before with, with you guys. Uh, I've told it in a few different settings, so I, I couldn't remember if I've shared this with you guys or not. But uh, many of you know, when I was when I was a sophomore in high school, when I was 16, my my dad passed away unexpectedly. Um, had a heart attack in his sleep, and no warning, nothing. There was no no chance of of um, saving him or anything like that. Um, but at 16, the end of my sophomore year in high school, we lost my dad. Uh, life at home got really difficult at that point. I think you would imagine it would be disruptive. Um, all the major roles, the way we functioned as a family kind of came undone. Uh, my mom lost her husband of nearly 25 years. My sister was 18 and I was 16. Uh, she was a freshman in college. Um, and I was, like I said, finishing my sophomore year in high school. And life got hard at times. I think the biggest thing was we were just trying to figure out how to fill that hole, that void. I mean, obviously there was an emotional sense of loss, but my dad did a lot for us. He provided stability, security, a sense of direction for us. Um, and just in an instant, that was gone. And so uh, there was some conflict in the family about who should do what, our expectations on one another changed. My mom expected me as a 16-year-old uh, young man to do certain things. I expected her as the parent to do certain things that neither of us were necessarily equipped to do. And so there was some tension, some conflicts. I felt lost, wasn't quite sure how to be the person that uh, I needed to be in the moment. And so on one such occasion where life seemed too big, I felt lost, confused, didn't know which end was up, um, where I was really missing my dad. 
I drove my 1979 Ford F-100 to the cemetery and just cried in front of my dad's tombstone. Just like maybe it was the first time I had really, really grieved. I don't, I don't remember the time frame of that, but I just emptied everything I had there. I mean, just wept. And it was uh, one of those like prayer cries. Like I was talking to my dad, but I was talking to God. I was talking to anybody who'd listen type of thing. Like it just, I didn't know what the next step I was even supposed to do. And as I'm there searching for answers, questioning what's going on, uh, I heard God. And, and it wasn't audible. It wasn't like I heard it with my ears, but it was close enough that I could describe it, you know, type of thing. Like people ask me, do you ever hear God speak audibly? I never have. I wouldn't say that this was audible, but it was one of those things where like God was shouting in my brain, if that makes sense. Like I knew that he said it, although I couldn't tell you how I knew that he said it. Um, And in that moment, standing in front or basically sitting on the ground in front of my dad's uh, headstone, I heard God speak. And the words I heard was just a simple Bible verse. It wasn't the verse that was on the back of my dad's tombstone, because that would have been awesome, like, blessed are the peacemakers. That would have been encouraging. Uh, It wasn't that verse. The verse I heard was, Oh, you of little faith. That wasn't what I was looking for in the moment. I got mad with God. As soon as I heard it, I got mad. Like, God, what are you doing? I'm 16. I just lost my dad. I'm here because I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And you're going to give me a grade on my faith at this point? I was mad. I got in my truck and went home. I was like, I'm done with this. This conversation is over, God. We're, we're done. I went up in my room, locked the door, and turned the radio on, and just laid on my bed. Didn't know what else to do. As time went by, I kept getting this nudge, though, hearing those words again in my head, oh, you of little faith, oh, you of little faith. It may have been, oh, ye of little faith. I don't know. I grew up in a church that did the King James thing. Um, so finally, that, that repeating voice, that nudge, got the best of me. And I grabbed my Bible, and I found where that verse was from. So I was still angry with God. I was still frustrated that that's... In this moment, of all the things you could say to me, this is what you chose to say. And so I found that verse. It's in the middle of a passage of scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching his disciples, but he's also teaching the crowd pretty much his main big sermon um, about the kingdom of God, what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. It's kind of his, his, his great sermon, right? It's where Jesus is explaining what it's like to live in God's kingdom. And we're going to read a portion of that right now. And I want you to pay attention to where that you of little faith comes in at, the context. Because I will tell you that when I read that verse in my Bible that day, my understanding of God changed. I went from being angry and crying because I was lost to crying because I had never felt so seen by God in my life before. So pay attention to where that verse comes in at. It'll be on the screen as well. Matthew 6, 25-33. Again, this is part of Jesus' larger teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. 
This is, these are the words of Jesus. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father... Holy Spirit, we pray today that you would gather our minds that they may be one with you. Open our ears so we may hear your word. Soften our hearts that we may receive your wisdom. Speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. Last week we talked about resources. God doesn't want us to live right at the edge of these of our resources. Don't live a life in such a way that you need every grape off the vine, that you need every bit of grain out of your field. Live in such a way that there's room for others, that you can be generous because you're not caught up in the worries of your own resources. Last week we talked about it's not good for us or our families to have the constant stress, constant fear, anxiety of living right on the brink of going over. Living lives where we have no space for anyone else or no time, no energy, or no resources to share with those we encounter. Because what happens when we live right at the edge or over those limits is we start to live a life that is focused inward because everything becomes about managing your own needs. In direct contrast to that tendency, God calls us, if you remember, to live in such a way that we deliberately have these resources left over. That's what Leviticus 19, 9 and 10 is telling us. Live in such a way that you don't need those edges and corners, those extra grapes that have fallen on the ground. Leave those deliberately for others in their need. The idea behind all of that is that God is generous, and so in turn God calls his people to be generous. But that's God's teaching. The world, on the other hand, kind of pushes us in a different direction. Tells us if we don't take care of ourselves first, no one else will. God says we should be concerned about a stranger's well-being, that we should have grapes left over for them, we should have grain in the field for them. But our society tells us that if we don't get everything for ourselves, others will take advantage of us. 
we'll be left with nothing or less than what we need. And so in turn, we're constantly reminded or taught that, that the stranger, the needy, those who have less than we do, those who have needs are a threat to us. It's a competition for resources. And so we look at those with needs as an inclu- uh, breaking into our space. But God says to make room for them in your life. Make room for the stranger, make room for the needy. As we look around, though we have these competing voices, we've got God saying, make room, you'll have enough. Live in such a way that you have space, time, resources to give. And the world's message that says, you better grab what you can because resources are limited and it's getting more hard, more difficult every day. In those two competing voices, it would appear right now that the world has got a better view of reality than God. Um, because there's more expenses than ever before, right? You can't turn on the news, the TV, get on Facebook, social media, whatever, talk to people without hearing about inflation. Everything's costing more. And then there's new expenses, and in addition to the ones that existed before, there's, there's new expenses, and they just continue to rise. There's more expenses, more cost to things, but... For those working, our wages don't go up at the same rate. For those on a fixed income, it's just a threat to your way of life. For those who are parents of of younger children, we are told that we need to have our kids involved in so many different things um, to help them grow up and navigate through these difficult times. Um, So we spend extra dollars, extra times, making sure they're able to participate in these things. Our time, our energy, our finances, all these resources are stretched thin. And even then we continue to hear that we need to do more, to get more, have more, and be more. And the fear of not having enough, the fear of not being enough, the fear of not doing enough drives us. So for some of us, for many of us, worry and fear becomes a great motivator in our lives. Fear and worry can shape our lives. It can take over how we prioritize what we prioritize. It can, it can cause us to make decisions uh, differently than we would if we weren't afraid or if we weren't worried. It can shape our lives. But God has a different plan. He desires something different for us. He has another way. So as we hear God's voice telling us to be generous, to share our resources, to leave the corners of the fields unharvested, worry and fear may show up as a response to that. When God says, give a little bit more, be more generous, don't take everything that is available to you, make room for other people's needs, I know internally I start asking, well, how am I going to make that work? Do I have enough room? Do I have enough margin? Worry and fear start driving the questions that I ask. Well, what will happen to me? Or what will happen to my family if I... Dot, dot, dot. What will happen at work if my coworker volunteers for the overtime, works the extra hours, works on the extra project, spends more time after work socializing with the boss? What happens if they do that and I go home and spend time with my family? 
What will happen if I don't have a, a nice car or a nice house? Will, will people think that I'm not keeping up? I'm struggling in my whatever, the American dream. What will happen if I don't keep up with the rat race? What will happen if I, if I choose a different way, if I don't grab a hold of everything that's available to, to me right now? What will happen? What if? And the answer to the what if questions are never good. <laughs> well, if I don't work the overtime, I won't have the paycheck. If I don't spend the extra time in the office, I won't get the promotion. I won't be able to retire when I want to. If I don't spend this time with, you know, my, getting my kids in these programs, then they won't get into the colleges that they want or the trade school that they want or fill in the blank, right? There's always fear and anxiety and worry behind this drive to do more, to be more, to have more. And obviously God is not calling us to a place of fear and worry. That's not from him. So today we want to look at what God has to say about worry and about fear in the life of a Christian. So the story I told a little bit ago, back when I was 16, when I heard for the first time ever really that God speak to me in a way that... Honestly, I've never experienced since. God spoke that scripture verse that was encouraging his hearers not to worry because of how much God cares for them. Did you catch that in that context? The OU of little faith wasn't an an admonition as much as it was an invitation to trust in the kingdom. It was it was couched in the in a, a series of verses talking about how God takes care of flowers. And birds, right? God knows their needs and takes care of them. And so that, that verse, while it hit me like a ton of bricks, pointed me to a, to a God that loved me and knew my needs. And that context changed everything for me in that moment. That same passage of, of scripture I want to share with us this morning because I believe it can answer our worries and our anxieties and our fears about living lives of generosity, of not grabbing every grape off the vine or every bit of grain out of the field. I've spent a lot of time studying and thinking about this over the past several years. I go back to it from time to time. And I think the best way to look at this passage of Scripture is by looking at two ideas, or really two actions, worrying and seeking Those are the verbs that Jesus talks about here. First, worrying. Well, Jesus says, stop, don't do it. (laughs) Often we say we believe in God, we trust in God. We believe we are sustained by God. But when push comes to shove, in the moment, when it's time to make some hard decisions, we have a tendency to put our trust back in ourselves to put the responsibility back on ourselves to make it happen. Yeah, I I trust God, but if I'm going to retire someday, I need to... I trust God. God's in control, but if my kids are going to, then I need to... Right? When push comes to shove, in the moment where, where it's time to make a decision, it's easy for us to fall back into trusting ourselves, depending on ourselves and our own abilities to provide for our needs. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is uh, one of my 
favorite pastors. Many know him as a theologian. Uh, he wrote many books, one called The Cost of Discipleship, which is pretty well known. Uh, he was a pastor, a theologian during World War II. Uh, he was a pastor in Germany during World War II. And uh, one of the few at the time that spoke out against the rise of, of the Nazi movement. Um, so it's with that context that he says this. He says, Do not worry. Earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing they give it security and freedom from worry. But in truth, they, the goods, are what cause anxiety. The heart which clings to goods, to the things of this world, receives with them the choking burden of worry. It's worry that collects treasures, and treasures produce more worries. And so we desire to seek our lives, to secure our lives with earthly goods. We want our worrying to make us worry-free. But the truth is the opposite. The chains which bind us to earthly goods, the clutches which hold the goods tight, are themselves worries. There's a lot that could be said about that, but I'm just going to let that kind of be what it is. Jesus reminds us in this Matthew passage that the birds and the plants don't have busy schedules. They don't have long to-do lists. They don't have college degrees. They don't have important jobs. They don't work overtime. They don't stay up late worrying about bills. They don't have smartphones. The birds and plants don't have Wi-Fi. They don't have unlimited data plans. Yet somehow, they have all that they need every day. So how? How is it that the birds and the flowers in the field have what they need? Jesus tells us that it's not a coincidence, it's not luck, but rather God the Father provides for them. And then he says this, Are you more important to God than the birds or the plants? Of course you are. That's a rhetorical question. Yes, you are. And if God provides for them because of his love, how much more will he take care of you? God won't always give you what you want or even what you think you need. But honestly, worrying about those things doesn't help the situation anyways, does it? He says, all the worrying that you can do won't add a single day to your life. So we should look to God to provide what we need, Jesus says. And if I can get to the point, if we can get to the point where we aren't worried or full of fear, anxiety about our own needs, then we can start looking out around us with a newfound freedom at the needs of others. Being able to leave the edges of our field, the corners of our field, unharvested. When we're no longer motivated by fear or by worry, then we can see others the way that God sees them. Understanding God's love for me allows me not to worry about every grain in the field or every grape on the vine. Right? Because I trust that God's going to take care of me, I do not have to, to fight for every grape Others who have needs are no longer a threat to me because God's going to provide for me. 
I can become free from the fear and the worry that motivates so much of how we live as a culture today. However, hearing all of that, it's easy for some, I think we all have this tendency at times, to interpret this scripture to mean that I can live without care. That it moves beyond being carefree to being careless. When we quit worrying, we can become apathetic. It's all settled. It doesn't matter. Like, God loves me. It doesn't matter what I do or don't do. Because God loves me. God will provide for me. God will provide for everyone. So I don't need to do anything. I don't have any responsibility. Of course, this isn't what Jesus is saying either. He's not saying that the opposite of worry is nothing. He doesn't say, don't worry, just sit on the couch and watch Netflix and life will be grand. Jesus didn't say not to worry because it didn't matter what we did. That's not the message here. Nor does Jesus say that if we quit worrying, God will give us everything we need and we want. Have faith, quit worrying, and God will give you that, whatever, fill in the blank. The prosperity gospel has shaped the way we interpret the scripture at times. Jesus says not to worry because we are to replace the action of worrying with the action of seeking. Not that if we have enough faith, we won't worry and God will just dump everything we want into our lives, into our lap, but that we're to replace our worries with seeking. So Jesus isn't offering us a passive response Quit worrying, do nothing. That's not what he's saying. Nor is this a prosperity gospel that says if you have enough faith, you won't have any needs ever again. If God loves you, then everything in your life is going to be perfect. That's not what Jesus is saying here either. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus doesn't tell us we won't have needs. He isn't telling us that we don't need to worry because everything's fine. You'll never be sick. You'll never have an unexpected bill. You'll never have a situation at work. You'll never have a conflict in your family. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, like, your life is going to be perfect if you don't worry about it. He's not saying we won't have needs. He's telling us that when we have needs, not to worry, but replace that worry with seeking the kingdom of God. Don't worry, but seek. See the verb change there? Seek first the kingdom and everything else will be taken care of, he says. Seeking is an active word. It's participatory. We are doing this act of seeking. Seeking is what we should be doing instead of worrying. It goes beyond wishing. It goes beyond being optimistic. Well, I think things will turn out. I think it'll be all right. Maybe it's not as bad as I think. It goes beyond that. It's the acknowledgement that there is something important out there and I must move myself to find where that is. I must move myself into that location. I must seek it, right? Ask any three-year-old and they can explain to you what seeking is, right? You go hide and then I'll come find you. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of our time this morning talking about what seeking is. I think you understand the definition of seeking, Rather, I'd rather talk about the kingdom as the object of our seeking. It's been my experience that we Christians are better at talking about not worrying 
then we are talking about seeking. So, for example, I hear much more often, don't worry, God is in control. Don't worry, have faith over fear. Don't worry, it will all work out in the end. I hear that more than I ever hear the words of Jesus. Don't worry, but seek the kingdom of God. Don't worry, God is active here and we just need to go find out what God is doing and put ourselves in the middle of that. Don't worry, but seek the kingdom of God is what Jesus is saying here. I think part of the issue with that, the reason why we defer to the the talking about the not worrying rather than the seeking, is because we struggle at times to understand what the kingdom is. We hear the word kingdom and we think of a, a place, a geographical location, something you can find on a map, you can locate with your GPS. This is a place where a king is, right? The kingdom is where the king is. And so if you use some basic assumptions and just kind of some generic logic, we conclude that the kingdom of God is where God is, and God is in heaven, so the kingdom is in heaven. So where I should want to go is to heaven, so seeking the kingdom means to seek heaven, and that means that I should get saved so I can go there when I die, and I've already been saved, and so that means my seeking is done, and I've crossed that finish line, and I don't need to do any more seeking. So it gets confusing when we think about the kingdom of God as someplace out there that we go at some other point in our existence. The word that Jesus uses for kingdom, though, is not a place. When he talks about the kingdom, he's talking about something else. It literally means the reign and rule of God. I made a slide because I want this kind of etched into your, your memory banks here. The kingdom of God equals the reign and rule of God. Right? It's, it's the reign and rule of God. It's not the place where God is. It's that which God rules. Okay, does that make sense? It's God's authority taking hold. It's God's shaping that which he controls. It's making things the way that the king desires them to be. So for example, a simple concrete example, the kingdom of God can be present in a hospital room. There's a nurse there who had gone to to school who felt a vocation to care for those who are having health challenges, health needs and crisis or whatever the situation may be. And so in this room, there's, there's this nurse taking care of this patient, this one who is sick or dealing with pain. There's this nurse that is caring for this patient. You can see this kingdom of God in this, in this moment, that this one who has dedicated their life, they've gone to school, they've, they've sacrificed time, they've given money to learn how to care for people who have great needs. You can see the kingdom of God in this moment, this one who are, through their vocation, loving others who have great needs. You can get a glimpse of the kingdom here. But in that same hospital room, it might even be the same nurse administering some uh, pain medication, a dose of Tylenol, extra strength. And that dose of Tylenol costs that patient $15. Well, that's not what God wants, <laughs> right? That's, that's taking somebody in a moment of health crisis <laughs> and making it 
into an opportunity for somebody else to make a tremendous profit. You can buy two bottles of extra strength Tylenol for $15, not just one dose. So in that one room, you can see where the, the reign of God, the kingdom of God is present in this vocation of caring for another who has needs. But it's also absent because a patient in need is being taken advantage of. So the reign of rule of God, the kingdom, is both present and absent in that situation at the same time. And I say that just to prove the point more. It's not a place that you can go. It's a way of looking at the world and understanding that which is how God wants it to be is the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us to seek the kingdom of God. Seek the things that are controlled by God. Seek the things that are shaped by God and his nature and his character. Shape the things that are obedient to the way that God wants them to be. Pursue those things. When, when situations come up, when, when you have needs, don't worry. That's not going to solve any problems. But seek the places, seek the people, seek the communities in which God has shaped and ordered them. Seeking God's kingdom is searching for, participating in communities that have been shaped by God's character and God's commands. So seek where God is establishing his ways. Seek a God-ordered way of life. Seek a community that is shaped by God. In this world full of worry and fear about the work I have to do to fix things, to maintain things, to take care of, of myself, seek to find where God is at work and present. Seek where things are as God commands them to be. I know we have a habit of saying God is in charge of everything. God is in control. God is all-powerful. And at times that can be very comforting. It can help us work through questions and challenges. But our theology, our belief is that sin is a rebellion against God's rule, right? It's a rejection of God's reign and rule. Sin is a, a turning away, whether you're looking at the, the original story of sin in the Bible of, of Adam and Eve eating the fruit from the tree they weren't supposed to. It's a rejection against God's authority. Sin is rebellion and rejection against the reign and rule of God. It's telling King Jesus no. And so in our world, in our lives, we encounter people and places, and maybe even in our own selves, and our, our own families, our own communities, even in our own thoughts, we encounter places and moments that are in rebellion against God's ways. The world is not as God would have it to be. Yes, God is king. He's Lord of all things. Jesus has conquered death. He's going to come again. But part of the work when he comes again is to judge and set right the things that are wrong because parts of creation are still rebelling. There's parts of creation that are still rejecting their king. I try to avoid tangents, but this one, I, it's in here, so follow with me a little bit this morning. <laughs> this line of thought, this, this idea about sin Parts of creation being rebelling against King Jesus, against God, its creator. Uh, this helps me understand evil in the world. Why does a kid get cancer? Why do bad things happen to good people? Not because God wanted it to happen or because God made it to happen, but because fallen and corrupted creation has rebelled against God. 
There are things that God made one way and they are not that way anymore. There is part of creation that is rebelling against the commands and the rule of of its king. Not everything as God wishes it to be yet. (laughs) Because while God is king of all, everything doesn't obey his authority right now. And so that's where in our scriptures we see this, the kingdom is here but not yet, right? There are places where things are exactly how God wants them to be. There's people, there's communities shaped by the character, the nature, the will of God. So the kingdom is here. But if you look around, there's places that are definitely not what God would have. There's rebellion against King Jesus. So Jesus says to seek out the places and the people that are shaped by God's reign and rule. Seek this kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a place where we go. It's anywhere in creation that is as God deems it to be. The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples on earth as it is in heaven, right? To be shaped by God on earth in the physical creation as it is where God decreed it from his throne in the heavens. So what is the good news today for the one who follows Jesus? What is the good news for the one who does not yet follow Jesus? The good news of the gospel today is that God is present and at work all around us. God is not absent. God is not hiding. So when it says seek God, it doesn't mean that God is playing some cosmic game of hide and seek with us. God is present. God is at work. Seeking the kingdom is not finding an absent God, but rather orienting ourselves, participating in the way God wants the world to be. Seeking the kingdom is as simple as surrendering to God's rule right where you are at. So putting it all back in context, when you have needs, when you have worries and concerns, Jesus says, do not worry, but rather seek to be shaped by the will of God. Seek to be shaped by the things that are how God wants them to be. Seek and you will find, Jesus says. One of my favorite things to preach on, but today I just want you to know that the kingdom is present amongst us. There are things in this world, in your life, that are shaped the way God wants them to be. The kingdom is present when we forgive one another. The kingdom is present when we love sacrificially. The kingdom is present when two or more gather in Christ's name. The kingdom is found when we reject the ways of the world and do what Jesus taught us to do. The kingdom is present when we trust God. And that's where we land on this journey today, this corners of the field. How am I able to live a life in which I am so free that I don't need to harvest every grape off the vine or don't need to harvest every square inch of my field? How can I live so free? How am I able to leave those corners of my field unharvested? We can worry and be fearful, clinging to those worldly resources, thinking that that will provide us peace that we seek. Or we can, as Jesus invites us to do, to trust in God. 
We can believe that it is in God's ways, it's in God's people, and it's in God's kingdom where freedom, peace, and life is found. So instead of seeking first the place where I rule or I reign or where I control things, seek the place where God rules, God reigns, where God shapes things. Seek the place that God is shaping and where God is at work. And if you're filled with worry and fear about something this morning, if we worry or fear the controlling the steering wheel of your life, like if worry and fear is driving your decision-making, it's shaping your conversations, your priorities, I want to give you an opportunity to seek the kingdom. I'm not going to tell you not to worry. I'm going to tell you to stop worrying and to seek. And the way we do that this morning is by announcing that the altars are open. If you have worry that is weighing you down, dictating your actions, shaping your life, I invite you to come and lay it on the altars through prayer. Come in the time of prayer and, the, and name the worry or the fear before God. Confess to your Heavenly Father that you are trying to create your own kingdom. You're trying to control your own circumstances and your own situation. Then seek his kingdom. God, I want you to be king of this area in my life. I want to trust you more. May it be on earth as it is in heaven. May I hear what you are calling me to do and know that you are calling me to do it because you love me. Because that's how we can trust. Because if God can care for the flowers of the field and the birds in the sky, he can care for you. Because his love is so much greater for you than it is for those things. You can put your trust in him.